Hi, I'm Amy Silverman, and I'm co-curator of Barflies, the live reading series held at Valley Bar in downtown Phoenix. Each month, we give writers a theme and invite them to tell their true stories on stage. This month's theme, in honor of record stores and music lovers everywhere, Buy, Sell, Trade. First up, Rachel Eggborough takes a solo vacation in Rock the Casbah. I graduated from the University of Arizona in May of 2008. Go Wildcats. <laughs> as soon as I got my degree, I left Tucson for a celebratory road trip to San Francisco with my friends Meg, Feruza, and Maria. The journey up the coast was long but beautiful. Two days later, we finally arrived at our destination in the middle of the night. I was most impressed with Berkeley. It was so green and charming and, I don't know, intelligent. I remember walking around campus and wondering what life would have been like if this had been my alma mater. Maybe I would have stuck to journalism after all, instead of switching to an English degree. Well, first business, and then I settled for English. One of my favorite pictures from the trip was of me sitting on a bench in my favorite purple all-American apparel v-neck, and I'm reading a newspaper, and I even made it my profile picture on Facebook. And all this time, I thought it was just a cool photo of me of what could have been However, I recently realized that in the original photo, Meg is sitting to my right holding the ad section, and Farooz is on my left casually holding a pair of chopsticks in the air. I had cropped them out, so instead of looking like a girl casually posing with her friends, I looked more like a wannabe hip loner. I totally took their company for granted. One day, after a lot of walking and touring, we found some grocery carts on the way to the BART. Feruza challenged Meg to a race, and Maria rode in Meg's cart and I in Feruza's. The M's outdistanced us easily, but Feruza and I kept going, screaming, and hooting. We didn't see the curb until it was too late. Meg snapped a photo at the perfect moment, right when I'm spilling out of the cart about to land in downward dog. And I have this wild, crazy grin, like I'm on this freakiest roller coaster ever. You can barely see Feruza. She's still holding the handle and crouching mischievously behind the cart. The people around us look shocked, amused, and annoyed. The moment perfectly encapsulated the whole feeling of the trip. Youth, fun, good vibes, no worries. We spent our last night at a backyard party getting tipsy off Spike Punch and dancing under string lights and stars. I had no idea that I was driving head on into the storm. The next day we said goodbye to Maria and headed to San Diego to pick up Meg's sister Allie on our way back to Tucson. She was renting a cute one bedroom turquoise blue bungalow about 15 minutes from the beach. It was surrounded by plants and seemed like paradise. I remember sighing and saying, I wish I could stay here longer. Meg looked at me and she said, why don't you? It's not like you're rushing back to anything. <laughs> this was true. Unlike everyone else, I was free as a bird. No class, no jobs, no plans which would have bothered me in summers before, but this time was different. This was the first time in my 21 years when I wasn't going back to school in the fall. Allie was fine with it, and I was kind of hoping she'd also leave her Chihuahua Wonder Boy to keep me company, but the next morning I stood on the porch and waved goodbye to my friends, Wonder Boy in tow. And that's how I began my first solo vacation in Pacific Beach, San Diego. Allie had given me free reign of her place, and there were so many possibilities. I could go for a bike ride. I could go to the beach. I could go to a bar later. But with each possibility, there was also a lot of risk. 
what if the bike got stolen because I didn't have a bike lock? What if all of my stuff got stolen at the beach because I'm there alone? What if I get stolen at the bar and worse? Here I am in paradise and I'm paralyzed, overwhelmed by all the coulds and what ifs. Here I am with my whole future ahead of me and this cloud of indecision is suffocating me. I knew this feeling, I knew it well. It came to me junior year of high school when I had to choose which colleges I applied to. It came back again the next year when I had to choose which college to actually attend, go Wildcats. <laughs> then choosing a major, then the turmoil at the thought of taking chemistry, then the relief of changing to undetermined and so on and so on. Every time I made what seemed like a life-changing decision, the cloud was there. Maybe the solo vacation wasn't a good idea after all. It was all fun and games while everyone was around. Now I was alone with this cloud. Later that night, I wrote in my journal, I was totally lame today. I let the weather keep me inside all day. I did start a book, play guitar, and catch up on more TV, but here I am alone on a Friday night. Très lame. Tomorrow I have to make up to I have to make up for today with the following. Bookstore, thrift store, I say smoothie, lunch, boardwalk, coffee shop. I ended the entry with this. I have no clue what to do tomorrow night. Maybe I'll hit up a singles club, but that's very scary. The next day I ventured to a bookstore and bought train spotting and a book on Mexican culture called Labyrinth of Solitude, AKA my current mental and emotional state. <laughs> then I went to a thrift store and finally ended my day on the boardwalk at a coffee shop where I wrote. So soul searching. What if I'm not cut out for journalism? People have told me that I have a voice, but what if that's not enough? What exactly are my strengths and weaknesses? What have I done to advance my future? Sure, I got a four-year degree, but now what? I feel like I'm Kanye West here. What do I do so much that I could make a living out of it? I have no clue. Two days passed. I have no idea what I actually did beyond this entry. Still in San Diego. Vacations by yourself are fun, but be prepared for lonely nights, especially if you don't like going out by yourself. Nights really were the worst. I could hear the parties and the people around me enjoying life. Just a few days ago, I had been just like them. What happened to that girl? Later, I was scrolling through, pace, through Facebook when I learned that one of my favorite bands was performing that night in downtown San Diego, the Von Bondies. Their song, Ben Swank and Come On, Come On were my anthems as I threaded my way through campus, pretending I was in my own music video. When someone would call me, rather than hearing the typical ring, they'd hear, everything is perfect, but then I get this phone call from their song, Tell Me What You See. After some doubts about venturing out at night, I plotted my trip via San Diego's bus and trolley routes and began my pilgrimage to the Kasbah, which I later learned did not inspire the song Rock the Kasbah by The Clash. <laughs> so in my youthful innocence, I was extra excited to go see such a historical landmark. <laughs> I arrived in time to catch the last song of the opening act, and I was a relief and I was relieved and excited. Finally, I'd get to see the Von Bondies. Then a guy next to me leaned over and said, One down, two to go. Two? I asked. Two more openers, then the Von Bondies. What kind of band has three opening acts? And how was I supposed to get home? The buses and trolleys all stopped at 10 o'clock. Feeling like a deflated Cinderella, I walked over to the merch table and bought a shirt and some stickers. I turn around and there standing at the bar 
is the lead singer and drummer of the Von Bondies, Jason Stolsteimer and Don Blum. There they are, casually sipping their beers, and no one is talking to them. In fact, people were ignoring them, walking right by like they weren't even there, like they were too cool to address the band that they came all this way to see, which is what I consider doing. I mean, they're just musicians. They're not special. But come on. They were special, especially to me. I went up to them and said, hey, I love you guys. <laughs> they both smiled politely, although Don seemed a little taken aback by my enthusiasm. But they agreed to a picture with me in the middle, my arms around Jason on my left and Don on my right. We look a little blurry, but for a moment I feel like I'm part of the band. No crops this time. And the show was amazing, and I got home fine in a taxi. And as for, my big, as for my big decision, I chose to take a gap year, which I've extended 10 times. <laughs> and any chance I have to see a favorite band in the flesh, I buy a ticket and a t-shirt. No regrets, no second thoughts. Next, Michael Anderson gets to witness an idol play pinball in Thank You for the Music. Spending the first 12 years of my life overseas meant that I had a lot of catching up to do when I moved to the States in 1978. Up to that point, my musical tastes were defined by the theme music of Korean cartoons and my dad's fanatical devotion to Pavarotti. Dad traveled overseas quite a bit and would always bring back something for my sister and me. For me, that meant bootleg tapes from the uh, top hits of the late 70s. I was particularly fond of ABBA and Peaches and Herb. I can envision my dad rudging into the airport gift shop in Malaysia and asking the clerk what the kids were listening to. As I began high school, it was pretty apparent that my classmates did not share my love of disco. Wanting badly to fit in, I began to take note of the band names scribbled on the book covers of my fellow students. I figured if a band was good enough for a teenager to scrawl on their name a hundred times, they were probably worth a listen. I used my book covers to keep track. The Clash, Sex Pistols, Black Flag, and X all made the cut, but there was one that stood out, the Ramones. Admittedly, there were other names that sounded more rock and roll. I mean, come on, the Sex Pistols? But after listening to Blitzkrieg Bop, Bop, I was hooked. I loved the frenetic pace of the music and the crushing sound that came out of my tiny Radio Shack stereo. Make way, ABBA. Punk rock is taking over. I managed to make some great friends in high school. We bonded over our love of music. More than one afternoon was spent in my buddy Dave's room, listening to the newest record from bands we were sure made us cooler just by listening to them. When the record needle hit the song Alex Chilton on the replacements Please to Meet Me album, I knew I had to see the band live. The next day, we bought tickets for their show at the living room, and I spent that evening making a homemade concert t-shirt. I'd heard of the living room, but hadn't been there yet. Frankly, that part of town was iffy. Driving into the parking lot for the show, I remember thinking that this was the coolest thing I had ever done. For those of you that haven't been to the, haven't had the pleasure of attending a performance at the living room, imagine what a condemned building might look like and then add awesome. <laughs> the club wasn't very big, but instantly felt comfortable, like a living room. The floor sagged with years of beer, sweat, and urine, and the place smelled of bleach. We shoehorned our way as close to the stage as we could get and waited. The replacements took the stage, and the crowd swelled forward with a tsunami of teen angst. We danced and sang with the boys as they tore through their set, singing one anthem after another. Every so often, someone from the crowd would be launched into the air and propelled 
folk towards the stage on the raised hand of the exuberant crowd. After the the band paid their encore, the house lights came up and we surveyed the scene. My once artfully drawn replacements t-shirt was now soaked with sweat and the ink turned into a smeared black mess that bled onto my skin. I remember smiling a lot. (laughs) Dave and I knew that we had been part of something special. The replacements played their hearts out, but there was something about the living room that made an indelible mark on me. This, I thought, is what made music real. It was then that I resolved to see as many shows of the living room as I could. It seemed like I was at the living room every weekend seeing bands like the Pixies, Husker Du, Throwing Muses, and finally, the Ramones. Records are fine, but if you wanted to experience the Ramones, you had to go to a show. Ramones shows were involuntarily participatory. As the band peeled the paint off the walls with a nonstop barrage of sound, the crowd was enlisted as backup singers yelling the chorus of each song at the top of their lungs. If you were there on a special night, Zippy the Pinhead would make an appearance by running around on stage and would sometimes dive headfirst into the waiting crowd. Since the room was part of the Ramones' standard East Coast tour stops, I managed to catch a few of their shows each time, and each time I left drenched in sweat with the biggest smile I could manage. By the time 1988 rolled around, I felt like I knew what good music was. I mean, I listened to the bands no one had heard of. I had a very punk rock leather jacket, and I was constantly going to shows. While reading the paper one day, I noticed a help wanted ad for a security guard. Not a particularly appealing job, but as I read further, I saw the location, the living room. I think I may have broken all the speed limits on my way up to Providence. I drove into the familiar parking lot and up the stairs that had climbed many times as a spectator. As I waited to speak with the owner, Randy, I was struck by the gravity of the moment. Me, an employee of the greatest club in Rhode Island? For reasons that I don't understand to this day, I was hired. Unless you were a bouncer with seniority, you never really knew what job you'd have for the night until you got there. The senior guys got to cherry pick the best shows and jobs, leaving noobs like me with the leftovers. You might be doing a load-in, which is when we'd help the band schlep in equipment from the van trailer truck into the club, or it might be as simple as working the door, checking IDs, and collecting the cover charge. There was one thing you did know. Who was playing that night? Who was book dictated the kind of night you'd have? Didn't really matter to me what show it was I was in. Being on the other side of the crowd was everything that I hoped it would be. I met some of my music idols and saw the love they had for what they did. I gained an entirely new appreciation for what music gives people, especially me. I was relaxing at home late Saturday morning when I got a call from Doggy, one of the bouncers from the living room. Dog asked me if I could cover his shift for him that night. I was kind of looking forward to a day off, but I was really new and I really wanted to impress the other bouncers. Before I committed, I asked, who's playing? Hang on, he said, as he shuffled through looking for his schedule. The Ramones. I'd forgotten that the boys were in town. I couldn't get yes out of my mouth fast enough. After being a face in the crowd, I'd have an opportunity to meet the band that launched my love of rock. The shift was a load-in show combo, which meant I'd be at the club pretty much all day. I hustled down in hopes of meeting the boys, but instead had the pleasure of moving 143 Marshall stacks. After a long afternoon, I was sitting at the bar when I noticed a tall, slender figure come through the doors. It looked kind of like a mop turned upside down. <clears throat> I took a minute before I realized it was Joey Ramone. Joey fucking Ramone. <laughs> There were a few pinball games in the corner of the club that no one ever played. Joey locked in on them and shuffled towards the one with the brightest lights. As he got closer, I said, Hey, Joey, big fan, looking forward to the show tonight. Without altering his his gaze, he said, (laughs) In his right hand, he held a clear Ziploc bag full of quarters. He plunked them on the glass of the pinball machine and started to play. I quickly realized that Joey was no pinball wizard, but he seemed to really enjoy playing. As Joey played, I continued to talk at him. I say at him 
because he didn't really respond to anything I said. Well, not in English anyway. After what seemed like hours, Joey grabbed the bag and the few quarters he had left and shuffled back toward the green room. A few hours later, the Ramones took the stage and played one of the best shows I've ever seen. It seemed like Joey flipped a switch and became Joey Ramone, rock legend. A wall of sound that Joey, Dee Dee, Marky, and Tommy produced was deafening in the best way possible. The three-second pause between songs was just enough for Joey to yell, One, two, three, four! I can't recall what I did as an employee that night, but I do, I do remember shouting, Hey, ho, let's go! about 50 times. The living room is long gone, but music continues to be part of my life. I still go to shows, not every weekend. I still look for that new band no one's ever heard of. And I still smile every time I hear Dancing Queen. Michael Anderson. Now, Jessica Hill has a tale of romance and true love for music in Emo Songs Have Unnecessarily Long Titles, and this story does too. My phone buzzed and I glanced at the screen. The notification bubble alerting me of a new text message listed a number, not a name, but I knew who it was. Despite deleting him from my phone a decade ago, he had stepped into my life in a time before every number was saved in a cell phone, and his is one of maybe five numbers I still know by heart. Hey there, since you're hip with it in the music biz, I wanted to see if you happen to have two ticks to warp tour you're trying to get rid of, the text read. The touring punk rock festival had been a summer staple in my late teen years, and it had been announced that the summer of 2018 would be its last full country run. I let him know that I didn't have any tickets and scrolled up in the text history. The last text I had sent him was three months prior, congratulating him on the birth of his baby girl. A weird message to compose to someone you once daydreamed with about what you'd name the children that you'd have together someday. The chat thread was made up of occasional questions or hellos every three to six months, checking in on how life was going. My phone buzzed again with his reply. Word. Figured I'd ask the only person I still know crushing it in the biz. Nick and I had met in our church youth group in high school. He was a gregarious sophomore with pop-punk style, seemingly always wearing a hat turned slightly to the side with the bill curved up, Dickies pants and skate shoes. I was a junior with a 4.0 GPA and a schedule packed with college app-worthy activities, hoping desperately that friendships built with the cool kids at my church would help me fit into their group at school, too. He was a drummer in a local band. I had maybe been to two concerts in my life. He was a flirt and a romantic, leaving notes with flowers picked from my neighbor's yards at my front door. I ate up his attention and fell for him hard. He took me to shows, and my circle of friends quickly became friends with musicians and the girls that dated them. I learned how to set up his drum kit and often helped with load in and load out at his band shows. Eager to help expose them to new fans, I used my place on the high school student council to create an event on campus and booked his band to play. I had found my spot among a completely different group of cool kids. Our first kiss felt straight out of a movie. It was January, and we were at our church's annual retreat for high school parishioners. Three days and two nights spent in dorm-style cabins in the pines of northern Arizona. He asked me to go on a walk with him one night, and as the distance between us and the main cabin grew, we veered off the path into the moonlit woods. He turned me towards him and pulled a pair of headphones out of his pocket. He gently slipped them over my ears and hit play on the CD Walkman tucked away in his jacket. <laughs> Look at the stars. Look how they shine for you. Coldplay's Yellow played as Nick wrapped me in his jacket, and we slow danced under the stars. Stars that felt like they really did shine for me in that moment. And as the last notes of the song trailed off, he kissed me. He'd perfectly chosen the soundtrack for that moment, the opening song for the mixtape defining the biggest moments in our relationship. 
he found a way to repeat the magic for our first I love you's. He'd introduced me to Dashboard Confessional, sure I would love the simple songs of acoustic guitar and vulnerable lyrics. I drove him home one night, and we sat in my 95 Honda Civic parked in front of his house, holding on to every minute we could before I'd have to leave to make it home by curfew. The lyrics to Screaming Infidelities told the story of singer Chris Caraba pining after a girl who'd left him. Not exactly a love song, but it was a favorite of ours. Your hair is everywhere, he sang. Nick always sang that line the loudest to me, running his fingers through my long, thick hair. That night, as we listened to the song in my car, he pulled me close and held my face in his hands, waiting for the song's last guitar strums to whisper, I love you. Butterflies filled every inch of my body, but I couldn't miss the moment. I whispered it back in that single second of silence between songs. Our penchant for emo bands was perfect for when we broke up the first time. He decided we should take a break so I could truly experience college and be available to meet new people. He swore we would be together in the end, despite my insistence that I didn't want to date anyone new. A few months passed, and when I did go out with someone else, I received a mix CD filled with songs written by scorned lovers. The leading track was Taking Back Sundays, Cute Without the E, Cut from the Team, and its opening line got his point across. Your lipstick, his collar. Don't worry, Angel, I know exactly what goes on. After a year and a half, he asked me to be his girlfriend again. He and his bandmates each still lived at home, so my house became the go-to spot for parties and a crash pad for smaller touring bands that came through town. Despite how much we loved each other and the fact that we'd always thought we'd get married, it was obvious how different our lives were becoming. I was going to school and working multiple jobs. He was chasing the dream of making it big and living a rock star life. I was booking bands to play on campus, DJing at the college radio station, and running the promotions team for the local alt-weekly. His band was going on occasional tours, hoping to get signed to a record label. We'd broken up again, uh, broken up again the summer before my final year of college with another promise that it was temporary. We were meant to be together after all. And when Nick left on tour that summer, he came through with another song to act as the score for my loneliness and the hope that would, it would all work out. Plain White Tees had written a song seemingly straight out of our lives. Hey there, Delilah. Don't you worry about the distance. I'm right there if you get lonely. Give this song another listen. Hey there, Delilah. I know times are getting hard, but just believe me, girl. I'll someday I'll pay the bills with this guitar. Hey there, there, Delilah. You be good, and don't you miss me. Two more years, and you'll be done with school, and I'll be making history like I do. You know it's all because of you. Over the years, I'd find that practically every girl that dated a boy in a band around this time had been told that this song was their song. And when he came home and we didn't get back together and months passed and we still didn't get back together, I decided I needed to move on. Four years of off and on had, as Chris Caraba had put it years before, taken its wear. I graduated the following year and landed a gig producing parties and festivals that featured local food, art, and music. It took a few years, but Nick eventually settled on studying respiratory therapy and ended up working in hospitals helping kids who struggled with breathing, just as he always had. I had found love again with someone I spent the remainder of my 20s with. Nick got married, and they had a daughter. After 10 years at the same company, I was offered a position at a new music venue opening in downtown Phoenix, and it was too good to pass up. A week before we opened, my relationship that had lasted those same 10 years came to an end, and the heartbreak was overwhelming. I threw myself into work, happy to spend every night lost in a crowd of 2,000 people with music loud enough to drown out my thoughts. Working there was what got me through those hardest days after the breakup. The venue had been open nearly a year when Nick sent those texts about Warp Tour. Not long after, he reached out asking if he could come by to see the venue. His band occasionally reunited, and that visit would ultimately result in a reunion show booked this summer with some local bands they used to play with all those years ago. As I showed him the space that day, it seemed crazy to me that he had never been there, and it was me who helped manage the place. 
The next day, I texted him to thank him for making music a part of my life. It had colored some of my best and most vibrant memories. Finding my place in that world had brought me confidence. And while he didn't know it, in my toughest of times, it had gotten me through. Jessica Hill. Jason P. Woodbury spent his formative years at a record store and tells the story in Glitter in the Sleeve. I was 21 when I landed my dream job. Moving away from the small town where I'd spent most of my life, I pressed pause on an aimless community college career and started bringing people up for CDs at Zia Record Exchange in Tempe. Every night, I'd come home, my hair smelling like Nag Champa incense, (laughs) and spend my off hours watching movies and listening to music. Working there was like being given a skeleton key to endless new doors. I started at the store possessing the most basic indie rock cred. Think like Death Cab for Cutie and mid-2000s blog rock. But immediately, I started exploring new corners of sound. Free jazz, dub reggae, prog rock, doom metal. I'd stay up all night and sleep through the morning, and then around four the next day, hop on my bike and head back to do it all again. I took working there very seriously, in the overzealous way that young people looking to establish identity take things seriously. There's a popular vision of a music obsessive, Socially awkward, headphones strapped on, blocking out the sound of the outside world. But working in a record store profoundly connected me to other people. They were my people. I hung out with my coworkers all the time. Taking trips with them to other record stores and to the comic shop. After a couple of weeks of proving myself, my manager, Adrian, invited me to join the group at Casey Moore's, where she held court nightly over our mismatched crew. Backpacker hip-hop kids, country rock, country rock weirdos, two-tone ska girls, and dudes obsessed with earth-scorching noise records. I wasn't the only person who oriented my life around the shop. There was William Wonderful, a local poet who passed out photocopied work and would occasionally offer spontaneous lectures on jazz. There was Brett Savage, this demented and sweaty dude who lived his entire life like a pro wrestler, minus the wrestling and the physical prowess. And there was Mike Lee, who would roll up to the store on a three-wheel bike draped in American flags. It was like easy rider, but not cool. He'd call the store looking for various editions of Dick's Picks, the Grateful Dead concert series that was collected on CD by their tape archivist, Dick Latvala. There were hundreds of them, all housed in tie-dye and swirly covers. And if you weren't a deadhead, I wasn't, not yet at least, they were next to impossible to tell apart. But my coworker Matt, he was the best at handling customer requests. You know how every group has a person that the whole crew just orbits around? That was Matt for us. You just sort of fawned over him. Everyone did. It wasn't just that he could find obscure Grateful Dead CDs. He sang cosmic country music with a gospel lilt, and his songs were sad and funny, and they broke your heart. You'd haul down to the yucca after work, and he would sing and get wasted, and the whole night sort of felt sanctified. Matt got everyone he knew into trouble, leaving a trail of broken guitars, smashed windows, and at least once an overflowing toilet in his wake. But there was something magnetic about him. He had this ability to instantly erase whatever transgression you'd marked him for. Nothing stuck to Matt. Before you knew it, you were giving him a ride downtown or to Scottsdale or Glendale, wherever his adventures were calling him that night. All was forgiven. Almost uniformly, customers adored Matt. But Mike Lee, King Burnout, collector of Grateful Dead CDs, he especially loved him. And occasionally his needs would go beyond standard customer service requirements. One night, distraught by a photo he'd seen of David Crosby in a music magazine, Lee came into the shop sobbing. 
Matt, he wailed. He had this insane voice. I can't, I can't do an impression of it. David isn't looking so good. There in the middle of the shop, he beseeched Matt to join him in a spontaneous prayer session. Matt wasn't a believer. We'd bonded over our shared rejection of the evangelical culture we were raised in. But he didn't turn Lee away. Heads bowed, they asked a higher power to care for Kroz. There's this small part of me that genuinely suspects that their spiritual intervention did help save that guy's life. (laughs) At the very least, it helped lead him on to a particularly satisfying late career run of records. You ever hear if I could only remember my name? Matt asked me once uh, on an afternoon at work, referencing David Crosby's 1971 solo debut. He He played it for me. It's a beautiful record, but a harrowing one, too. Matt heard the howling pain in it, while most of us were just swept up in the pleasure of its stoned-out spaciness. I think Matt heard deeper than that. Matt had struggles. A couple months into our friendship, he had to take a week off to lock himself in his apartment in an attempt to kick a brutal habit. One night after work, trading a camel back and forth outside of the shop, he explained to me how unbearably it had hurt. I was supremely naive, figuring, well, it's good, this bad thing is behind him. But problems like that have a tendency to fight back. Over the years, as we moved to other locations in our record store chain, the problem reared its head a few more times. It wasn't just Matt. The longer I worked in music, the more I noticed the telltale signs in other friends and acquaintances. Someone's 12-inch single collection would show up for sale at a nearby shop, traded in for access to quick cash. People quit showing up to hangouts. Sometimes someone would drop out of existence altogether. Hey, has anyone seen so-and-so? Answered by rounds of shaking heads. Neil Young once sang, Is it better to burn out or fade away? And for a long time, I thought that was a really good question, a query into the nature of art and the human condition. But now I'm more drawn to Young's 1975 album, Tonight's the Night, which was written in the aftermath of his cherished roadie Bruce Berry and crazy horse guitarist Danny Witten's fatal overdoses. It's not all right to say goodbye, Young sings on a world on a string. People aren't meant to burn up. They aren't meant to disappear. But for a few years, Matt did disappear from my life. As is typical, his problems manifested in some betrayals, and I was wounded and uncertain exactly how to proceed. So I quit speaking to him. For years, I'd hear stories from mutual friends that at a party, he'd spoken about my self-righteousness, my holier-than-thou attitude. And I hated him talking about that stuff, because to some degree, I knew he was right. Not that it excused his behavior, behavior that put him at risk, you know, behavior that put, that deeply hurt the people that he cared about. But he was right how little I'd considered his root pain. What did I know about his hurt or the traumas that it stemmed from? Why hadn't I ever asked him about that? I never used the word junkie to describe him, but perhaps somewhere in my reptile brain, I'm ashamed to say I probably thought it. When a person requires too much, too much thought or too much concern, possesses too great a need, it's shockingly easy to create language to deny them personhood, to write them off, and to excuse ourselves from having to deal with their whole deal. There's an alternate timeline where this story ends badly, but thankfully not this one. Eventually we reconnected, and he dedicated himself to the hard work of taking care of himself which allowed him to begin taking care of others, too. Not long ago, I stood in his backyard, and I watched him marry the love of his life, the mother of his kids, and he radiated joy all night. He was surrounded by his people, some from the record store we shared, some gathered up from other places that his life took him. The shop has long since moved out of that neighborhood, Further down the road, priced out by the foul corporatization that is well on its way to swallowing up all of Tempe. I said goodbye to the store in my own way. The way I said goodbye to too many people I'd connected with in it were because of it. 
People whose lives got out of hand, who lost the plot, or who simply got sick and couldn't fight it off. Matt told me he did the same, taking a few minutes to acknowledge the years we spent there, smoking probably his thousandth cigarette outside of that building. I think it's easy to attach significance to places, but I know it wasn't the physical space that shaped us, or the records, or anything else. Those things are part of it, sure, but at the core, it's people. I think it's people who teach us how to better be ourselves. So what do we owe them for that gift? At the risk of oversimplifying, I think it might be just a willingness to gather together, to share a record, or maybe an unbelieving prayer. More than anything, I think it means never saying goodbye before you have to. Jason P. Woodbury. Finally, Sarah Ventry goes for the impossible in What Remains is Future. Will she get it? You'll have to listen to find out. The iconic punk club CBGB's closed on my 21st birthday. It was that last part of old New York, the gritty, raw, manic part where anything is possible and rules are nothing more than vague suggestions. The venue was known for incubating acts that were, at one time, the forefront of being loud and unconventional. Bands like the Ramones and Talking Heads and Blondie. The final night, Patti Smith was set to play an epic, no-holds-barred set with a handful of secret special guests. So as an almost adult who had, to that point, spent pretty much my whole life in Tempe and was dying to do something exciting and meaningful and maybe even a little bit dangerous, I had to go. The minor obstacle was that I was a broke college student 2,400 miles away with no ticket to the show. (laughs) I scraped together enough money for a red-eye flight and hoped for the best. I also convinced a friend of mine to come along and another friend who lived in Philly to take the train up to meet us. I figured we had a will, so there must be a way. Once we were in New York, we checked into a hostel in Upper Manhattan and made a plan. It seemed foolproof, mostly because we had not factored in that we were the fools. We would steal some pillows and blankets from the hostel take them to the Lower East Side on two different trains, and camp out the night before the closing so that we would be first in line when the venue opened the next night. Then I would take the remaining $45 from my bank account and bribe the door guys to let me in. Done. After quickly realizing that the plan had some holes in it, we spent the night hanging out at CB's Sister Bar, a club next door known as the Gallery that had smaller shows. I got drunk and started carting people at the door. (laughs) It was a memorable experience, but it didn't help much with figuring out how to get into the Patti Smith show. The next day after recovering from my first legal binge, I threw on some red lipstick and hoop earrings and prepared to brave the cold October evening with one goal only, get into that show by any means necessary. My friends came with me and we started standing in line sometime around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. A door guy from the club came out periodically to make an announcement to the line that stretched all the way around the block. If you don't have a ticket, leave now. No one is getting in without a ticket. I looked from side to side and planted my feet a little firmer. If I had learned anything from my records back in Tempe, it was that punk rock was not about following the rules. After almost three hours of standing in this line, my friends had it. They came along for the ride and they would have loved to see the show, but they hadn't really planned for all this. Sarah, we are not getting in and we're starving. We're gonna go get some food, you wanna come? I can't, I said. I have to stay here. If I leave, then there is really no way we're getting in. But bring me back some food? After they left, I continued my mental calculations about how much money it would take to bribe each door guy to let me in, and I started worrying 
that the $45 might not be enough. At the same time, I noticed another woman who was by herself walking up and down the line. There weren't a lot of women by themselves, so I looked up and I smiled at her. Do you have an extra ticket, she asked. No, I don't even have one for myself. But I've been waiting here for a few hours, and I am not leaving until they make me. She told me her name was Lucia, and she was stunningly beautiful. She was Italian and had long brown hair and huge brown eyes, and I watched as men quickly fell in love with her. Not in lust, but in love. And while I was not in love with her, I did feel a certain kinship. We linked arms and dug in together. We were sisters in rock. Pretty soon, my friends came back with some leftover pizza. You owe us $15, they said. Sorry, guys, I'm going to have to get you back later. I need that money to bribe the door, guys. I was really convinced that $45 could work and that the $15 was going to make all the difference. They explained to me that they, too, were broke and needed the money for train fare. I reluctantly paid them. They wished me luck on my impossible dream and headed home for the night. I grabbed a piece of pizza and offered Lucia a slice. We needed to fortify. It was getting dark and close to the time doors were opening, and we had no idea what we were up against. Then I heard someone yell from behind me, Hey, you selling pizza? Without thinking, I screamed, No, I'm giving it away. What? He couldn't hear me. Yeah, I said, I'm selling pizza. I felt a little bad. Punk rock wasn't about capitalism, but these were desperate times. How much, he asked. Two dollars a slice. How much? Three dollars a slice. Within 45 seconds, all the pizza was sold, and I was feeling a little better. My blood sugar was up, I had a rad woman by my side, and my pockets were padded with a little extra much-needed cash. We kept waiting, and pretty soon the guy in front of us turned around and started chatting with us. Well, he started chatting with Lucia. His name was Adam, and his family owned a cafe at the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge. They were old New York, too. He asked Lucia about the cafe she worked at on St. Mark's, and what part of Italy she was from, and what shows she had seen. We asked him how he had gotten his ticket, and he said that the venue owners knew his family because of the cafe. He was on the guest list. He made an offhand comment about trying to get us in, but no promises. The doors opened, and the line finally started to move. Hundreds of us who had waited for hours, bonded by a love not only of the music CBGBs gave us, but also of the electric feeling that comes from the experience you have with a group of strangers when you're part of something truly magnificent together. If you've ever been to one really amazing, really life-changing show, you know that feeling. When Adam got to the front of the line, he told the door guy he was on the guest list. Which one, the door guy asked. Who knew there was more than one? This was clearly not going to work. We were fucked. <laughs> the house list, he said calmly. The door guy walked away and returned a minute later. He put a wristband on Adam and his plus one. Then Adam looked this door guy in the eye and said, actually, I have a plus three. It was a bold-faced lie. I knew it. He knew it. Lucia knew it. The door guy had to have known it. Without hesitation, he produced two more wristbands and placed them on Lucia and me. We were in! As soon as we got into that hallowed hall, I grabbed Adam and kissed him and told him I was buying him and his friends drinks all night. It was certainly another miscalculation of funds, even with the pizza money, but it was done in good spirit. I ran to the front of the club and made it to within about seven rows of people from the front of the stage. Patti Smith stood in front of me and sang and danced and screamed and cried and spit and read poetry. <laughs> she knew that this thing she had been a part of, that she helped build and grow, she knew it was ending. And in that moment, she challenged the audience to continue its legacy. She pleaded, we created it, you take it over. She handed out pins at the end of the night that said, what remains is future. She handed one to me. 
Her drummer tossed his sticks into the crowd. I caught one. After the show, I stayed and watched them cut down the iconic awning outside of the club. I went on a 3 a.m. walk through the Bowery with Lucia and our new friend Bobby, who we met that night. He had been the drummer of Bad Religion. I got back to the hostel and I whispered to my friend, I got in. <laughs> she gave me side eye that indicated a mixture of overtiredness and slight annoyance. She hadn't expected my plan or lack thereof to work. In fairness, neither had I. And I could tell she had some second thoughts about leaving. I was still so high on adrenaline that I didn't even have the compassion to feel bad. I knew she couldn't have toughed it out like I did. The whole long flight back home and the ensuing weeks of trying to finish out the semester seemed like a blur. I was constantly exhausted, but I felt like I had a new direction in life, a mission, a responsibility given to me by none other than the punk rock priestess, Patti Smith. You take it over. After that show, I started working the door at a local venue. That same month, I started writing about music. Almost 13 years later, I still write about music and tell stories and talk to strangers in line. I still think about what Patti asked me to do. I still reach for moments of wild determination and unreasonable persistence because sometimes, like on that night, it's actually a virtue. That was Sarah Ventry. And that's it for this episode of the Barflies Podcast. Special thanks to my co-curator, Katie Bravo, Charlie Levy, David Maroney, and the rest of the folks at Valley Bar, and to Calexico for our theme music. Learn more about Barflies, including upcoming workshops and performances at barflies.org.